Hello and welcome to session 34 of the Fire Science Show. Happy to be here as usual. Today is going to be a really good one, so you want to listen to this. When we are dealing with our typical fire safety engineering problems, they're usually limited to like a building, maybe a district. But what if there were fire safety issues on levels of all cities, societies, or even countries? And such challenges exist and are very difficult to solve. And most of them are not in Western countries where we are living good lives and living in fire safe buildings, not even thinking about uh, the, the safety of our structures because it was delivered. But in many lower income countries, people don't have environment like we do. And they also don't have fire safety sometimes at all. Sometimes maybe they don't even know they need fire safety because some other issues in their livelihoods are way more urgent than this. And it's quite hard to help them, actually. Quite hard to really help them. It's not about sending tons of fireproofing boards and then things done, but you need to act at the societal level on on completely different scale with completely different actors. And this episode is all about this. I've met this fantastic person. Her name is Danielle Antonellis. She previously worked in Arup on projects related to low-income countries and challenges related to fire in informal settlements. And after being exposed to these tragedies, she found a way of, li- of life in helping others to live fire safety as not as a privilege, but as a human right. She started on her own company, Kindling, which is a non-profit. It was one and a half year ago, and already she's rocking with like 20 plus people, some of the greatest minds of the fire helping her out. And uh, she really has a good grasp on on how can we help in this part of the world where the fire safety is not yet a priority, but is a huge threat and a, a huge risk factor. I don't think this needs more introduction. It's really powerful discussion with Danielle and uh, very eye-opening to me and I really like her approach, the systematic approach. I think that's enough of an introduction uh, because no one can tell you better about the topic than Danielle. So yeah, let's not prolong this anymore. Let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wigzinski and I will be your host. Hello and welcome. Today I'm here with Danielle Antonellis from uh, company Kindling. Hello, Danielle. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Really happy to have you here. I was learning about your work and Kindling's work in inclusive fire safety and it really uh, caught my attention a long time ago, actually. And I I really uh, appreciate what uh, you guys are doing. And I would love to hear more about how this uh, started and where it's going. So maybe let's start from the beginning. I know you were an engineer in Arup and Mm -hmm. suddenly you're starting a company to solve most urgent issues on the planet uh, for the fire safety. So so how did that happen? That's like, that must be a hell of a story. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. So it's a story that I'm still learning as it goes. It's certainly nothing that was planned. But yeah, so I worked at Arup for six years and I was lucky to be able to work in a lot of projects all over the world Mm -hmm. from kind of agricultural colleges in Rwanda to Hyundai training centers in South Korea and cultural centers in India. So Arup was this company that exposed me to all these amazing kind of cultures of fire safety and work around the world. So I got this really big interest in trying to understand what fire safety looks like in different places. In 2015, we started researching fire safety and informal settlements in Arup in collaboration with the international development team. And they basically came to, to the fire engineering team and said, you know, there's this huge problem with fire in informal settlements and they Mm -hmm. were sharing examples especially from cape town south africa but every time it comes up in their work it just gets brushed aside and no one really addresses it there's maybe some beliefs that it's it's not easy to address or some communities Mm -hmm. maybe it's an act of god It's, it's just something that's too difficult and no one's there to help understand the issue so they basically challenged the fire engineering team to try to see if we could better understand the problem and actually develop ways to tackle it. Sorry, inside a commercial company, 
Yeah, not as a business development, right? Or no, no, it's total okay. internal research. I mean, the structure of Arab is pretty cool. It's a company, an employee-owned company, and they do a lot of internal research and exploration. So this was all internal, and it still is. They're they're continuing with this work today. And so we started doing desktop research, went down to South Africa in 2017 and spent just a week down in Cape Town engaging with, I think it was like 27 or 28 different stakeholders through interviews and just trying to understand from NGOs' perspectives, the fire services, from different kind of academic groups that were involved with this issue and kind of all sorts of different groups to say, okay, what are, what are the kind of key issues here and how might fire safety be improved considering the local context? This trip personally changed my life completely because I all of a sudden realized there were these huge issues that I never learned in college. It felt funny because I had a fire engineering degree and I'd been in the mm-hmm. industry for a while, right? So from then on, it became a really big passion of my own, my, myself personally, a lot of my other colleagues. And, and I know certainly not just within ERA, but University of Edinburgh and Stellenbosch University and now much larger groups are focusing on this issue. So I think it's one of those issues that once you learn about, you can't unlearn. And it's very visceral when you start to see images of these fires and see how extreme they, they affect people. So anyways, I can make this a long story, but I'll try to shorten it. <laughs> so yeah, over the years, we did more and more work in informal settlement research. And then I started to understand more about urban resilience mm. and trying to understand how fire is and more importantly is not being addressed through urban resilience programming and disaster risk reduction, how fire is essentially being left out there. So started to kind of identify all of these gaps within international development, the humanitarian sector and disaster management and risk reduction that were pretty glaring when you started to see mm. them. Like there's institutions that are directly trying to tackle issues that fire should be a central part of the conversation for. And it's just absolutely not part of the conversation. Or if it is, it's because there was maybe an individual in that local place that was the advocate or champion for fire. Mm -hmm. And so those gaps became, again, unable to unsee. And in Arab, we were pushing things more and more. And eventually got to the point where I realized that this is something that I'd really like to get a bit more serious about and tried to figure out what's the best mechanism to try to support more dialogue and work in this area. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a nonprofit was born. So a group that's not competing with anyone in the fire industry, that's there intentionally to support the fire industry and in tackling these issues to connect the fire industry and academia to the other sectors and spaces where the conversations are happening, where fire is being left out. So kindling is all about that connection, trying to get fire safety knowledge into the hands of local and global humanitarian and development efforts where differences can be made. That definitely was and probably still is a case uh, of my own, that you are not really sensitive towards problems as you describe, like fires in informal settlements. That's that's not really, uh, at least it was not at when I was trained a part of my training. I, I have never learned about these issues and actually have never considered them like through an issue. You see a picture of such a settlement and as trained fire safety engineer, you immediately realize the risks related to these urban concepts. But somehow you don't consider that. I would be looking at it like as a on a picture, not as a subject of my professional judgment, because it's not a type of fire engineering that I do. I like fancy building, world record building technologies, preventing architects from doing stupid things and stuff like that. But I, I was never like considering issues like what you mentioned, nor issues like uh, what Guillermo mentioned in, in my first interview about the fires in Indonesia. Ice fires were suddenly we're talking about the mission of CO comparable to Europe from a single fire in Indonesia. That's That's yeah. like, wow. And we're really battling about like batteries and vehicles and, and wood in tall buildings when we have issues like that. You cannot unsee that when you realize the scale yeah. of the problem. So I understand your pathway through that. And now being an independent company and nonprofit, did it open a new pathways for you? Like, uh, how would you judge that move? It was terrifying at first. Of all. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, it was, it's been amazing. I didn't know how long it would take before I'd be able to say whether or not it was the right move. And it took me about two months to know. 
So that was pretty quick feedback, actually. Mm-hmm. It was quick, yeah. And I think at the time, there was like no one else in the organization. I was just talking to people and realizing everyone was going, oh, yeah, this is needed. And so that kind of was quick feedback. But beyond kind of more of the personal, <laughs> the personal move, as an organization, we're getting a lot of interest. And not just in organization, but I mean in the problem. Like we're getting more and more people to pay attention to the issues. There's a lot of engagement with groups that we didn't expect to engage with that are reaching out and saying, hey, this is an issue that we want to see if we can do something about. And that's pretty incredible. So I would say, yeah, it, it became a vacuum. And, and I, I knew that before, but mm-hmm. it, you don't know until you get there fully. And as soon as it kind of stepped into the space, went, yeah, this is a massive vacuum and there's so much more work needed in this area. And a lot of the work being done previously and, and continuing to be done is by academic institutions that are doing amazing things. And we work pretty closely with a lot of the different academic institutions. But there isn't any kind of nonprofit organization that's really serious about this. Ideally, so there'll be more. Hopefully Kindling grows and hopefully other kind of groups emerge and other companies and organizations start to address this more seriously. So the ideal world, we're being copied and there's whole groups kind of that's going great. over that. I've asked because, you know, for example, there was a pathway within Arup, within a commercial company to touch it. And there are pathways in academia where you touch Mm -hmm. issues like that. And notably the Iris Project by University of Edinburgh Mm -hmm. and Partners, which was amazing. And I think they've received all the awards they could from Beaglestone to IFSS, best paper, best poster, because it's a great project. In fact, it's Mm -hmm. our worthy project. But these uh, opportunities have these constraints, like within a company, you're probably limited with what company wants to achieve with this uh, project or whatever space it gives to you, because in the end, you're still probably supposed to design buildings. And in academia, you have to win a goddamn grant, which we all know is very hard. And around 2017, we actually, in ITB, my group had a grant for wind-driven damage to informal settlements in South Africa with uh, South African people from, I think it was Stellenbosch as well. Mm-hmm. And we didn't get that. And now you're in your own space where you dictate the rules, you decide what you pursue and that and actually you can be a connection between what's needed and the academia where it can go. So that that's kind of amazing. Let's frame the problem a bit because mm-hmm. we've mentioned informal settlements, but I mm-hmm. guess this is not everything you want to do within Kindling. Like, mm-hmm. uh, from reading your prospects, I feel the goal is not limited to that. So maybe if you could tell me what the mission of, of your company is, what's the main target of your actions? So we have really big goals um, <laughs> of the organization. That's maybe, good. Not even, maybe not even calling them goals, but our focus is really big. Mm-hmm. And we were very intentional about that. And we continue to refine, but we don't want to kind of limit ourselves to something that's very small that we know we can systematically mm-hmm. move through and address. We want to grapple with the big, messy complexity of fire safety and and kind of vulnerability, which means that we're not going to address it on our own. It means that, well, actually the name Kindling itself Mm. is a head nod to the humility needed to work in this space. So we're not catalyst or some explosive thing that's going to come in. And <laughs> <Yeah>. We're kindling. <laughs> we're kind of the little pieces of wood that maybe help it get things started. But actually, local actors are the ones that are the real fuel that take off and make things happen. You need to make a spin-off company, call it Firebrand, and make it spread the ideas <laughs> over the yeah. world. Yeah, that's a good idea. Might have to take you over that. Um, so yeah, so really we're all about supporting others in, in addressing work. And that's the only way we believe you can actually make systemic change. So frame the problem. Okay, so if we think about this, there's a whole bunch of ways you could tackle trying to frame it. But if we start globally, 95% of fire deaths occur mm-hmm. in low income countries. Okay. Um, if you look at where is fire engineering, for example, as an indicator globally and who's doing it right so there might be fire engineering projects where maybe someone in london is working on a project in rwanda like i was at arab but are there actually local fire engineers and fire safety professionals in rwanda developing systems of fire safety but if you work as a fire engineer in london on a project in rwanda you're not developing informal settlement you're probably building a skyscraper or something fancy there right exactly and that's not a part of the problem Exactly. In that particular yeah. case, I was working on a project with international development. So it was a bit more about development, mm-hmm. but generally, yes. Like okay, we, I yeah. worked on a project in India and it's like this beautiful Hindu heritage site that 
is not the same as what we're talking mm-hmm. about, really. And also, I don't inherently understand the challenges in Rwanda and what does the local mm-hmm. fire services have for their capacity and equipment? What are the kind of local building materials and construction? What does the industry look like? How does the regulatory system really work beyond what's written in the code? So there's this huge divide of kind of a lack of local understanding and and really just like not being in a position where I can really make sure that what we do as fire engineers is going to work in the short term or the long term. So when we talk about who's in the best position to think and address these issues, we're really talking about local stakeholders. Who locally is there that is the champion for fire safety? How are the systems developed in order to address these issues? And when you look at a lot of low middle income countries, and not all, there are certainly emerging examples of really exciting progress. But in many countries, there is just a total gap in professionalization of fire safety engineering and the disciplines around it. So I did some mapping a few months ago, and I was very generous in the way I mapped it. And 12% of low middle income countries have any sort of fire engineering institution. 12%. 12%, less than 12%. And that was including IFE, SFP, any undergrad, grad, kind of postgrad. And so we end up seeing that there's this kind of transfer of knowledge and resources and approaches from high-income countries to low-middle-income countries, despite them not necessarily being locally appropriate. Of course, there's value in that. And I think we'll have an opportunity, hopefully, to talk about what we can do in different parts of the world to support addressing these issues. But there's a real need to develop local professionals. These are things that Richard Walls at Stellenbosch University is addressing head-on as the first postgraduate fire engineering program on the continent of Africa, creating links to different um, institutions all over the continent, um, people in India at the University of Benhinagar are doing amazing work on this. So there's some really exciting emerging groups, but we need to make sure as an industry we're supporting these groups and really trying to promote the kind of open access to knowledge and resources so that we can really spread our discipline as we all know we need to do. Mm-hmm. And then beyond just thinking about fire engineering, we need to think, okay, well, in cities in particular, which is our real focus, we focus on urban fire issues. What are the kind of challenges and how are they emerging, not only in informal settlements, but in thinking about local infrastructure systems and how are complex urban systems being developed and how do they create fire risk in many cases? So fire risk obviously doesn't just show up on day one. We don't say, we want to create a high fire risk city, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we Cities develop over time, and as decisions are made, fire risk emerges. And we can see this all over the world. And so if decisions are being made that aren't kind of informed by fire safety, then we're going to see an accumulation of fire risk, and especially places that are kind of informal or factories or other areas where there's likely to be high fire risk, you know, there won't necessarily even be the the capacity to to respond to the fires, let alone to prevent the fire risk from emerging in the first place. Those issues aren't unique to low and middle income countries. That mm-hmm. happens all over the world. We're also looking at issues like in the US, for example, around vulnerably and insecurely housed persons trying to understand better who's affected by fire in at home, at work, and transport systems. I mean, this cross-cutting, right? These fire safety mm-hmm. and equity issues. Good examples would be uh, Grenfell is the obvious example in yeah. London. So maybe that's a starting point. Uh, the humanitarian sector is another area completely. Uh, we look as well at how are displaced populations like refugees and internally displaced persons affected by fire disproportionately, mm-hmm. um, whether they're in refugee camps or internally displaced persons camps or, or perhaps living in informal settlements or more dispersed even than that, and trying to understand how the humanitarian system is designed and how might it address or uh, not address fire risk issues? How are people supported when there is a fire? In your mission statement of Kindling, there's this part of a sentence that you target the the vulnerable communities around the world. Mm -hmm. And I I wondered, like, how would you define who's vulnerable? Because you've already mentioned that, that in the U.S. probably there's a lot of people who, who would be under this category. I can imagine in Poland there's a lot because whenever I see a large fire in the television that had many casualties, it's not a fancy shopping mall or a skyscraper that, that's been built in the last five years. It's usually either some social housing or very old buildings or socially excluded groups of people uh, with a history of alcohol abuse or something. I don't also want to like frame people that, okay, but in statistics show that they, these people are 
uh, most under the risk. So, so how would you define vulnerabilities for your purposes? Like, mm. is it like, geographically grouped or, or like social construct? Where is it? All of the above. And okay. so in some work we're doing in the U.S. that I mentioned, we're looking at the intersection between human vulnerabilities to fire and shelter vulnerabilities to fire, for okay. example. Fire, I do believe generally fire is a social construct. Mm-hmm. And there are decisions made that, that influence who is exposed to fire and who has access to fire safety. It's not, again, they're not top-down decisions of, okay, you're going to mm-hmm. get fire safety and you're not. But when you start to look at the emergent nature of how fire risk comes about, it's true that certain groups are more exposed than others. And they're often related to systemic issues, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's not a simple question to answer, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I tend to use the term fire safety inequalities, really just trying to point out the fact that people do experience fire differently and they're exposed to different fire risks. Like I personally had a fire, actually, when I was coming yeah. out of college. And of course, any fire incident can be a very big part of someone's life, right? It's a big deal. I lost all my belongings and it, it was an impactful thing in my life. But within minutes while the fire was happening, I mean, within like three minutes, the fire services were there. It was an amazing response. My friends and family were surrounding me. The Red Cross was there very quickly. The local restaurant offered support to us. We had insurance that kicked in. Two months later, I was living in a beautiful apartment working a fire engineering job in Rhode Island. I was fine. Not the end of the life, right? Was it a disaster? Is a big question I often ask. No, it wasn't actually, because if you look at like the IFRC definition of disaster, it has to do with how well someone or a group can cope. And we had coping capacity to deal with the incident, right? So you you were resilient actually against that fire. Yeah. When you then look at maybe communities living in formal settlements, for example, in Cape Town, just as a contrast, Mm -hmm. people don't have insurance. People don't barely have even like banking systems. So their money might be in their actual house. We'll see often that people are carrying their belongings outside during the fire. And there's a lot of re-entry, which of course we can talk about how that relates to life safety risks during the incidents. There's a lot of pressure on trying to make sure that their belongings are not all destroyed because they don't have the safety nets and the financial or the personal safety nets and kind of social safety nets and oftentimes to be able to cope with that incident. So if the fire only affects one household, perhaps the neighborhood will support that household and they will have the capacity. But yeah. when we see these fires displacing hundreds or thousands of people, that coping capacity doesn't exist. And so they are disasters. And that's one of the reasons it's so important to frame fire as a disaster in the broader disaster risk reduction and urban resilience conversations, because it's often left out. And I think it's because we often look at fire as these small frequent events, mm-hmm. um, and especially when we're thinking about house home fires, but actually they can be significant events on their own. And if you look at kind of disaster risk reduction definitions, fire is always an extensive disaster risk. There's intensive and extensive, and intensive relates to the big, high severity, low frequency events, which there are of fire, but then the extensive are the kind of everyday risks that expose society, and fire is both. It's also in urban resilience a shock and a stress. So it's this kind of interesting risk or hazard that straddles all these definitions. It's fascinating. I'm doing risk analysis and stuff like that, and I wouldn't consider the, the capacity to cope with the, the disaster as a part of the equation. While, while it fits so nicely in the risk equation, you know, mm-hmm. probability times consequences and the, the capacity of the society to cope with the effects of the fire, both in terms of economy, but also in, in social terms, could be an interesting addition to this risk equation. So that's a yeah. great definition of vulnerability, actually, the, the capacity to cope with uh, with the disaster. And you've also mentioned that people have different levels of being exposed to fire and different levels of access to fire safety. And they, this is also very interesting because you here define two platforms on which you can act. You mm-hmm. can reduce the exposed to fire, which probably is very difficult actually, because it requires changes in people's lives. Mm-hmm. But you can also improve the access to fire safety, which your company actually can deliver 
I would not say easily, but uh, as you said, training local champions, mm -hmm. this is something you can dissipate among communities. Mm -hmm. And what, what feedback do you receive? Does it click locally? Do you find champions locally? Do, you, do they want uh, this? How is it on the other side? Mm, I think it depends, right? Yeah. And it's important that we're listening to that. Like, that's the first question, right? Like listening to, to them. Yeah, like listening to, I mean, and, and they should be in the driver's seat when programs get going okay. as well. But listening to what are people challenged by, how does fire fit into their kind of hierarchy of hazards and issues that they're dealing with okay. in their lives. If security concerns are 10 times more important to someone, than fire safety, then good luck trying to argue that they shouldn't have a lock on their door that might be increasing the fire risk or bars in their windows. And so it's not to mean that we shouldn't be having these conversations and trying to support finding solutions that address both security concerns and mm -hmm. fire. But if we come in saying fire is the most important thing and you need to do this and coming in with solutions rather than listening to understand their problems in the wider framing of their lives and the way that communities function, then we're going to miss the most important information about how we can actually provide support. So, yeah, I mean, that's number one. But in general, I would say that it, it varies so much, right? So in Cape Town, in my engagement down there personally with communities, but also just through the kind of collaboration with colleagues and people that we've interviewed over the years, I would say there's a very high awareness and not only awareness, but people have directly experienced fires in many cases. Mm -hmm. Some people I've met have experienced three, four fires in their lifetime. Okay. And so there's a very, very high level of acceptance almost to say, yeah, this is an issue and we want to how can we address this issue? Now it's highly political and there's all sorts of other challenges socially, but it's acknowledged and it's prioritized. That's different than my experience in Bangalore, India in 2019, when we were engaging with households in informal settlements and trying to understand their experiences with fire. And we essentially got laughed out of some of the rooms that we were in because they were like, fire is not an issue here. What are you talking about? Right. Okay. Now, that's a very strange experience when you're a fire engineer looking around, seeing fire hazards all around you. And right? you know the statistics. Yes. And so you, it's this very important balance to strike between trying to say, okay, how might we support people in helping them understand the risks that they might be exposed to, even if they haven't manifested directly in front of them, but also respecting that they are ultimately the ones with the agency to decide what they want to do. And so... We are outsiders. How can we provide that support and think about public education so that people can decide for themselves what they want to prioritize? I think in um, fire safety engineering, as we know it, this issue has been broken because uh, we we can usually put an economic value on the mm -hmm. risk or, or we can put a number to convince someone that this is the money you will need to pay to your insurer if you don't yeah. have this or it's just directly imposed by the law framework that says that you need to have this type of walls in your buildings, period. Mm -hmm. And it's based on, let's say, accumulative experience of the whole nation building that. And I assume this is something you don't have in, like, if 12% of these countries have any fire engineering, I would assume it's even worse when it goes to codes and compliance with codes and, and stuff like that. And sometimes I, I have a feeling these people could prioritize more common, mildly annoying events like crime or, or, or I don't know, so, some other aspects of their safety. They will be more concerned with them because they're common and often than mm -hmm. once a 25-year fire that can take everything of mm -hmm. them. If I tell you a massive fire will happen once every 25 years, you immediately know that it's a horrible thing and we need to stop it. But if your house is going to get dropped twice a year, you're probably more uh, worried about your belongings because this is everything you have. As you mentioned, your banking systems are like very, completely different perspective of wealth and, and being able to live in there. So is this risk perception also a thing that you target? I, I don't think we have any big answer for you on this one, yeah. <laughs> but we try to understand risk perception. And often we're trying to understand risk perception of stakeholders that engage with informal settlements or might influence them. So 
partly because Kindling is just such a young organization at this stage, and we were founded during a pandemic. We haven't, we haven't, we haven't had uh, as much opportunity to engage directly with communities. We work with local partners that have that direct engagement or with kind of stakeholders. We interview stakeholders and engage them to understand, mm-hmm. you know, what is the perspective and experience of the fire services, of NGOs, of different groups that kind of have those relationships sometimes. We look at perception at multiple different levels, right? What's the perception, how it's told in community levels, what's the perception of stakeholders in a position to support or sometimes get in the way of fire safety? So we work really closely with social scientists. And in general, we're a very interdisciplinary group and looking to become more diverse in our disciplines and backgrounds because these aren't technical problems. There are technical aspects to these problems. Mm-hmm. But these are societal problems, and we need to look at them socially, politically, economically, um, technically. Right? If you had to weigh them, which weighs more, like the lack of technical solutions or the lack of social acceptance to use the solutions we know? It's both. <laughs> <laughs> it's both, okay. <laughs> it's both, and it's, it's so integrated mm-hmm. that leading with one edge or the other, I think, will make you miss things that are too important. Mm-hmm. So it really is about integrated working. A lot of our teams in Kindling will have a few social scientists, DRR specialists, and fire engineers, maybe some that's stronger in fire science, maybe throw some other disciplines in there. Right? Mm-hmm. So we're going, and, and interestingly, working can be hard, right? So we're clunkily <laughs> working our way through problems together and challenging each other with our understanding and the models that we apply to things as we go. But on a bigger scale beyond our projects, I think it's really important that these issues are framed as social, political, and economic Mm -hmm. issues. I think sometimes in the fire space, we forget that or we don't prioritize that enough because that's not what we're good at necessarily. It's not our area of expertise. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, we know that. We'll put it in the background of a paper. But then we'll get really technical really fast and not necessarily contextualize what that means and how it's actually potentially going to make a difference if someone knew this knowledge. So like we did a literature review, for example, in Bangladesh around fire and informal settlements. There's not been much work done in Bangladesh around this. And everything that was published or most, I shouldn't say everything, but most things that were published were really technical and didn't actually make any link out to how the problem is more widely. It was really difficult okay. because, I mean, and it's partly probably because of how publications work where you have to have a certain depth of technical kind of novelty in order to get published. But how can we make sure that that's still transcending into the kind of wider issues? So there's an incredible amount that we can do, but we need to make sure that we're not doing it in isolation. So I really am a huge advocate of systems-based thinking and approaches. And if you're really taking a systems-based approach, you can't disconnect these kind of social, political, economic, and technical issues. And I, I was really devastated after a podcast with Richard Walls. He was on an FPA podcast about informal settlement fires and the challenges around that. And he's giving a very illustrative description of a fire inside of informal settlement the issues that local firefighters are going through, the issues the local community is going through, the, let's say, abnormal things that are going around it. I, I would, I'll, I'll link that NFP podcast in, in the show notes. It's, it's really interesting. And it really gives you this feeling that, you know, the solutions we have will not work there. I have the feeling that CFD would be the last thing these people need from me. <laughs> Maybe it would be fun, f- fancy to uh, simulate such fires uh, for my own ego-boosting paper. And actually, we're doing that with Antonio. But <laughs> I don't think it's the puzzle that's that's missing. When you switched from career in Arab, that was, was part of the discovery of this new world? Searching for the puzzles that we miss in, in London or in Warsaw? Mm. I mean, I don't want to dismiss the value of mm. fire engineering tools like CFD or others that might yeah. have to like reveal insights to the problems. And that's probably the most important thing that we stop obsessing about the solutions we have in hand and start obsessing more about the problems that ex- exist and trying to understand them better. And doing that in a way where we're not like me as someone, a woman who's from Boston, Massachusetts, can't do a problem definition of something happening in Cape Town on my own. I might be able to assist in trying to organize information and try to help reveal things, but that's through dialogue and engagement locally. But that being said, there was a huge transition for me when I stepped outside of my 
uh, fire engineering role at Air Up because I think before I had this idea that like we kind of had to have some fancy solution that would kind of address things really well and had like five-year plans and trying to be quite ambitious and think about how could we get it funded and everything. And, and, and there are still needs to do that. And we're doing some of that stuff now, trying to be really ambitious with programs. But when I started Kindling, I got this like really refreshing feeling that there's no pressure on time or kind of having certain traditional measures of success in the industry that we need to adhere to anymore. And so suddenly something that I felt like we had to bring all the pieces of the puzzle together and do in a very organized way. Maybe that's just because I'm an mm. engineer and I <laughs> like yeah. to do that. Like like uh, we do a project, yeah. Yeah, like you have to work backwards. Like I want to get here and then to get there, we have to do all these steps. I started to see that there was actually a lot of value in letting things emerge on their own and being a bit more open-ended about what might be useful. So not coming with preordained solutions, but really coming with, knowledge and resources and an open mind mm -hmm. so that we can support the development of solutions locally that make a difference and that are really taking the best of the knowledge and the learning that we've had all over the world to these places, but not trying to force the solutions that we've developed from other parts of the world. I once read a book about how to be perceived smart by other people. I, that was not the title of the book, but uh, the, the, the idea was that in conversations, when someone asks you about solutions, the most powerful thing you can ask is, how would you solve that? And mm -hmm. just keep asking them, how would they solve that? And then they eventually come to a solution and they thank you. And giving them answers straightforward is an act of being selfish and that usually doesn't work. And probably on your institutional side, it's probably the same. If you go to a third world country and give them solution that, okay, you need to run 30 CFDs and cast concrete this wide and stuff like that, it's not going to really click there. But helping them find their own solutions, aiding them with your knowledge and your experience is something very powerful. In the green room, before we started, you've mentioned some interesting uh, developments in Kindling. So where's it going? Your next steps in your project that's not being planned? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, we have this funny thing in Kindling called the exploratory phase. Yeah. From 2020 to 2024, essentially, we have freedom to just explore without the traditional KPIs of an organization, same pressure. It's not that we're not strategic, right? But... It's kind of intentionally like institutionalized in our own organization to say, if we're serious about this, we need to be committed to it. And so mm -hmm. we have in our strategy, we have four pillars of work. We have research, education, training, advocacy and pilot projects. And I can talk to all four of those. But it is pretty open-ended because we're looking for who's really serious about doing work in this space, what local groups might be emerging that we can collaborate with. So I can share kind of some of our ambitions around some of these four pillars, if that's mm -hmm. what you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, on. okay. <laughs> so within research, kind of as I keep harping on about the importance of problem definition, that is a huge mm -hmm. focus of ours. To give you some examples of projects we've been working on, are kind of doing a cross-city comparison between Dhaka, Bangladesh, and Cape Town, South Africa, in partnership with NFPA and Stellenbosch University, to look at how does fire risk emerge as a socially constructed hazard or issue and how does it emerge through the root causes and dynamic pressures of society and ultimately presenting these unsafe conditions and then how might you address fire safety by looking at tactical things that can be done at the community level but also trying to look at opportunities for systemic change further up the food chain. We're doing research in the U.S. right now to try to define and conceptualize what are insecurely and vulnerably sheltered populations from a fire risk perspective. Again, trying to scope out issues and try to identify ways to address them. So looking at developing research roadmap on that project, plans for action for, for further work. We're doing a project right now with the Global Shelter Cluster, which is a humanitarian group. And this is funded by the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office in the UK and USA, the Bureau of Humanitarian Assistance, to map out the entire global humanitarian shelter and settlement system and look at how fire safety is and is not addressed. What are the kind of current experiences and perceptions of humanitarian actors? How are they dealing with fire? 
and what are the gaps? That's like that's like a third huge project, and you have three more pillars. A lot, and you can see that all these projects are very systems based, yeah. right? Yeah. We're not really trying to say this is how you solve something. We're looking at understanding kind of the baseline. The next pillar is around education and training. And this is something that we're building capacity to be able to do more of. So it's not something that Kindling kind of mm-hmm. has a bunch of programs in today. This focuses on fire safety education of communities and affected populations, as well as of people that are in positions to support those populations. So it's two categories of it, right? So how do you actually work on public education? How do you engage with refugee communities in, I don't know, Northeast Nigeria, around fire safety, it's a very different question than how do you engage with the humanitarian actors that are mostly international supporting the refugees in North, or actually I should say internally displaced persons are not refugees in Northeast Nigeria. I have a question related to this education yeah, aspect. Yeah. It's like language a huge barrier in there because to my knowledge, most of the resources would be in English or maybe in high developed countries, they have their own resources. But I assume yeah. in low income countries, it would put enormous barriers between you and your local champions because people who are fluent in English are probably quite well in these areas. Um, there are definitely a lot of people, I think, living in formal settlements that speak English, but language is a barrier. And it's something that needs to be addressed very directly. So there are, like, for the humanitarian sector, for example, where you have a lot of international humanitarian agencies that are flying and flying out into different emergencies. Mm-hmm. And I say emergencies, not talking about fire emergencies, but, like, large-scale conflict-based emergencies or disaster, yeah. like big flooding that displaces hundreds of thousands of people kind of emergencies. They will often speak English. Um, mm-hmm. So when you're engaging with kind of those professionals – English is generally okay. You might need to use French or some mm. other languages, but generally, you, you know, English is okay. I'm sorry. Uh, when you're talking about more community-based fire safety education mm. and training, language is extremely important. And it's not just language. It's trying to understand culturally how people currently understand. How do they interact with fire? I mean, fire is wonderful in the fact that everyone knows what it is. Everyone has an experience with it. We all cook with it. We all use it to light candles, right? People have different relationships with fire, positive and negative. And so how do we understand those relationships? How do we understand the past experiences, especially of negative events? Because there are groups that have been experienced quite traumatic events related to fire. And that's really important to understand. How do they learn about fire in general? So there's a lot of questions that include language but go beyond it. It's about mm-hmm. more cultural and experience-based things that we need to think about. And so it's it's complicated. It takes a lot of time. We're working on how do we build capacity to be able to support this better. But often we are targeting kind of the agencies that are local and are supporting those groups rather than us going indirectly. Kindling will never mm-hmm. just have a direct um, relationship with a household of okay. people without having a local partner. So we're always working with local partners. That's great. And so... Yeah, there's there's kind of those two categories. We're just about to launch a fire safety education panel in Kindling. And this is a group of, I'm so excited, it's amazing. (laughs) So it's a group of kind of education, disaster risk reduction, fire safety, firefighting professionals, I'm sure missing others, development actors that work across the world and can all contribute unique insights and perspectives into how to support fire safety education. So we are establishing this group. I think there's about 12 of them that are coming together. They've just finished recruitment now. So we're kind of about to kick off. And that group will be supporting Kindling and our wider partners and organizations that we're trying to support into reimagining fire safety education and trying to think of new ways to support it. So it's it's a new emerging area for us. Okay. And the advocacy pillar? Advocacy is what it's all about in the end because we're about connection, right? Mm -hmm. So connecting people to... Together across industries and across sectors and across countries and trying to bring these issues to the forefront in the different sectors mm-hmm. that they need to be addressed. So I almost think that everything we do is advocacy in some okay. way. But of course, we also have specific efforts around like communication strategies to try to get certain stakeholders to listen to certain issues and things. And then pilot projects, again, are more of an emerging area for us where we're trying to bring theory into practice and actually put the research and learning that we've had in, in, into practice. So we're building up this year to do more pilot projects. For example, one project we'd love to do is to build on the research looking at DACA and Cape Town informal settlements and actually start to 
work with communities directly and local partners to figure out how we could support fire risk reduction in specific communities. And the idea is to always do pilot projects in strategic ways where there's cross-context learning. Like DACA and Cape Town and kind of specific communities in those two are chosen on purpose because they're very different, although there's uniting similarities. So we're trying to figure out how can we learn in a way that then becomes more transferable later. And how do you figure out what's really locally appropriate only and what's transferable? So this concepts of contextualization is at the heart of what we do. So you're documenting not only the solution, but also the process and all the social aspects of it, all the, all the discussions being taken, the questions that were asked and answered and so on. That's really cool. Yeah. And I assume it's like open access and, and everything, right? Or is it like uh, proprietary knowledge? No, no, no. I, I, like after an hour talking with you, I would not <laughs> expect that. I guess it's open access. And you would like to use this as a case studies that can be implemented elsewhere with these methodologies, not, not necessarily solutions. Yeah. It's all about process and methodologies, really. I mean, ultimately, as an organization, yes, we want to have as much impact as we can in everything that we do. And that's a huge measure of how we make choices for projects and how we support communities. But ultimately, the scale of these issues are so massive. I mean, a billion people live in informal settlements globally. So if we're just supporting one community and not making that information accessible and not doing the work with that one community in a way that's actually going to create learning for others to implement solutions in other places, or not even solutions, but to implement the methodology, then we're kind of kidding ourselves on impact, to be honest. So open access is really important. It's something that we kind of struggle with to figure out how do we strike certain balances with different kind of you know publishing and making sure that things are open access. And I'm sure you can speak to that more than I can really about the challenges of this, but it's incredibly important. We're trying to look at how can we innovate to be more open, to open up the industry more, to be sharing knowledge as much as possible. I especially admire the process management part and this whole concept of developing a solution, not necessarily being a solution because to me, it sounds like a powerful thing and it goes very well with what uh, Brian Mitchum has said in here, that, that maybe this is the direction we need to pursue. And uh, so for the end, maybe you want to give a shout out to the team because uh, there are a lot of amazing uh, people working with and for Kindling. And, uh, yeah, they're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super biased, but I have to say like a year and a half ago, I was alone in a basement as Kindling and now we've grown <laughs> to 20 plus people and it's my favorite part of the whole thing. Within a pandemic. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I can, I'd love to shout out some names if that's okay. I don't know. Yeah, go um, on. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so our board of directors is growing. Um, so myself, Kathleen Almond, who was a VP at NFPA until a couple of years ago and she retired, is our chair of the board. Mm-hmm. Jim Queter, who worked at Arif until he retired last year, is the treasurer of Kindling. Christine Pongratz, who works at Jensen Hughes on wildfire issues, is our secretary. Jim Kennedy, who is an amazing humanitarian with incredible experience all over the world, is one of our directors. And Boris Coteau is someone who I met in India years ago, and he was working in a social, social enterprise looking at solar lighting, and he is one of our directors as well. He does a lot with social impact financing. Hiramo Rain just joined our board. I'm so excited. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. That's cool. I don't think he needs an introduction, but I'm so excited. Um, as well as David Beal, who is in the insurance industry in the U.S., just joined our board of directors. And then in our staff, we currently have, again, kind of myself, Antonio Ciccioni, who, of course, you know, we mentioned before, yeah. from Stellenbosch University. And Antonio is doing lots of cool things in South Africa with CFS Consulting, his new group and everything as well. Sandra is a senior fire safety researcher with us. She's based in Mexico City and also doing her postdoc at UNAM University. Riaseth is a staff member who's originally from Bangladesh, but currently in London doing his PhD. So we have a lot of staff who are kind of wearing multiple hats, which is very cool because they bring different perspectives to kindling from the other work that they're doing as well. And then I maybe won't just for brevity, won't read all the advisor <laughs> volunteer name. <but laughs> we have a wonderful group of volunteers and advisors and it's constantly growing. And you can look at our website, please do to read the bios of our advisors because they're incredible. Uh, and w- <laughs> what about your re- research partners and the shout outs there? Yeah, absolutely. So we have been working a lot with academic institutions like uh, York University, University of Edinburgh, Stellenbosch University, University of Maryland is another great group. University of Lancashire okay. has been looking at this. 
So there's been a lot of groups in fire engineering that are getting more serious about this and raising that next generation of fire engineers to be really socially aware and to be addressing some of the world's most urgent fire problems. So what I said earlier about maybe not having known about this when I was in college mm-hmm. a little over 10 years ago, I think that story is changing and this is making its way into that's, our That's really good. I will also link to the resources that, that were provided, like the Costa Rica paper. I, I enjoyed that paper a lot. I actually regret we didn't go into technicalities of that, but I think it was much more powerful to, to talk about the mission and the process of getting there. I, I think that was, maybe we'll leave Costa Rica and we'll invite some other researchers for some yeah. other episode. It would be actually quite an interesting twist. And Fire Science Show is also supportive to your mission. We're also open access. Maybe uh, we can be a part of of educating at least. Maybe someone finds uh, our uh, work interesting and and gains an insights to to the knowledge. Probably it's not necessarily that knowledge that they need, but still, as I've learned, everything in fire science is relevant and everything is useful. So there is no irrelevant topics in fire science. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm a huge uh, fan of what you are doing and I am looking forward to learn more about what you have uh, achieved. And so far it looks really inspiring and interesting and, and fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on here. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks. And that's it. That was really great chat with Danielle and really eye-opening in terms of what the issues are and how can we seek solutions. And it's not that easy to just tell them, okay, this is the way you do CFD, this is the way you fireproof your buildings. You need to find solutions that are applicable at the local level. You need to find characters that will deliver fire safety at the local level. You cannot send fire safety there from London or Warsaw. You need to have local champions. You need to build them. You need to tell them how important fire safety is. First, you need to measure that. Is it really that important? Are there other aspects that may be more important to uh, people you want to serve? Well, it's really a complex issue. It's not a problem of finding um, a magical solution or a new engineering trick that will suddenly deliver safety to these people. It's about acting on all of these levels of technology, society, education, research to promote and deliver solutions that will work and that people will want and that people will be able to apply. And wow, what what a hell of a challenge that is. It brings me back to the episode with Brian Meacham where he said that fire safety is a social technical system. And it, here on this example, you truly can see this. So I, I hope you liked it. Maybe some of you will be inspired to help Danielle or, or engage in some of these kindling activities. Even if not, I hope it at least broadens your horizons. And as for me, you will not be able to unsee this problem anymore. <laughs> so at least making us a little bit more sensitive to the big picture issues in fire. And obviously, I I never thought that coming into fire uh, science, you could actually change the world, but it seems you can. So that that is kind of an amazing thing about our discipline. After 34 episodes, still being surprised by how big fire science is. So thanks for being here with me. And as usual, next Wednesday, next episode. So I'm looking forward to see you. I would be very happy if you help me share about the podcast. So maybe take the link to this episode, send it to a friend or post it somewhere. It helps build up the audience, which is always great to reach more minds. And yeah, well, see you next Wednesday. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.